Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 188. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and back with me, my semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pestricelli. Jay is the CEO of Zega Financial. How you doing, Jay? Doing great, Derek. How are you? I'm doing all right. I, uh, I did watch uh, the Giants and Cowboys game. I have a lot of questions about the officiating, but Jay, I don't think we have enough time to, to go into that. So. I was fine until you brought that up. No, it was, it was you know, Giants had the chance to be 3-0. and I mean, could have been great, but now they're not. Now they're 2-1. But I'll still take 2-1. It's better than the last five years that we've had for a start. For any Giant fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. This is true. Uh, although they may be calling you and I up to play offensive line. But let's, let's uh, switch to the reason why we wanted to get together is interest rates are higher. That's not why we did the podcast. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows inflation's running. Everyone knows that interest rates are higher and that bonds and you know equities have come under pressure from that. But for our strategies, which people here listening to the program time and time again, I mentioned, you know, buy the market, stay in the market, time in the market's more important than timing the market, and we want to be hedged. But the fact that interest rates have gone up actually presents an opportunity within our hedged equity strategies. And that's because, well, a number of reasons. And because of this, Jay, I know we want to talk about just some of the, one, the opportunity, and second, the adjustments to kind of a core buying hedge strategy uh, that we now can do that actually change things, I think, for the better for, uh, for people investing in the strategy. So Jay, why don't you start just kind of maybe on the equity side and then a little bit on, you know, the, the fixed income side too, but the construction of the portfolio and then wherever you want to start, Jay, I'll let you run. Yeah, no, yeah, I will. And you're right, Derek, that, you know, we have this opportunity that hasn't existed for 15 years to have, you know, short-term treasuries, two years or less, pay you a decent amount, right? Actually pay you something that's worth being invested with, right? At over 4%. Um, and there's a lot of people that think that's going to continue to go up, right? So the environment has changed. We know that. We're not, uh, you know, we're not insensitive to that. We're not so, you know, rigid in the way that we invest. We're always assessing what the environment looks like. And as options traders, things definitely get interesting when all of a sudden interest rates uh, become meaningful. And there's a lot of things that we could do with that. But the the I think... The, the reason what we wanted to communicate here today or what we really wanted to talk about was how are we running our buy and hedge retirement portfolio now, now that we have this, you know, I'm going to say low risk. Do I say risk free? Like, what's the right way to describe a U.S. Treasury, Derek? People call it the risk free rate, right? I mean, that's the, 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 the a shorter time period. But I, I think it's fair to say this. They are fully guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, meaning Unless the U.S. decides to to stop paying interest, you know, and default, and we can print our own currency, but I also think there's an argument to say, you know, the risk-free rate, and I think okay, good, yes. So we're yeah, the say, true risk-free rate is probably like a three-month treasury or shorter, but let's yeah, say that year, is the, the risk-free rate. I mean, we we'll, use the yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get into that, you know, the risk in those, but yeah, you're getting towards the risk-free rate, Jay. Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. So uh, a significantly lower risk uh, vehicle than what we were using with the short duration high yield and the secured loan portfolios we were using. 
right? And so uh, we've made this rotation where we now hold treasuries as a means of generating the income that we're looking for in that portfolio. So as a quick reminder, picture a pie chart where the pie chart is 90% equity exposure through calls. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And 90%, sorry, 10% in calls and 90% in some sort of yield bearing vehicle, right? We're always looking for the safest way to generate three and a half to 4%. At the beginning of this year, what we thought was the safest way to do it was using short duration high yield and using secured loans with a hedge on that part of the portfolio uh, to have reduced risk, but still shooting for a three or 4% return. Uh, now that treasuries are at 4%, we don't have to take loan risk. We don't have to take high yield default risk. We don't have to take uh, uh, you know, rate interest rate risk past two, three years any longer, right? So because there's a new and a better alternative that meets the criteria for this strategy, we've made the rotation to use treasuries, right? And we're not the, the only one to do this. There's some other folks that have been using treasuries. Unfortunately, they did it, for, unfortunately for them, they did it when rates were much lower, which means they've been hurt by this rising rate environment. Um, but for us, we think this has been the opportune time Maybe not the exact time, but the right time to make a rotation out of uh, out of the short duration high yield and the secured loans into into treasuries. So uh, you asked me to on the equity portion. I did exactly the opposite of what you asked me, Derek. So sorry. Let's let me let me hit on that. So they are all related, right? These th- these pieces aren't um, in a constructed in a vacuum. And so if I if you know, when we talk about that 10% slice of the portfolio allocated towards the markets, we use long calls to create our equity exposure, right? Long calls on the S&P 500. For those of you that know what a call is, right? It's the right to buy stock at a certain price at a certain date. Uh, as the holder of that, you get to make the determine if you want to exercise that call or not and buy the stock at the strike price. For us, we just look for the appreciation of the calls to replicate and capture the appreciation of the underlying. In this case, the S&P 500, we use the ETF SPY. So SPY goes up, calls increase in value after a certain amount. SPY goes down. The most you can lose is what you spent on a call. That is the beauty of a call, right? You can't lose more than what you paid for it. So we spend 10% of the portfolio to make it feel like we're 100% invested in the market. Right? And that's kind of the beauty of the way this portfolio is constructed. Not a lot of folks do this. And it's why we say we're hedged, because we know the limitation of what those long calls can take from a loss perspective. So I'm going to pause there, Derek. Sorry, I was rambling. You want to uh, pipe in with a comment or thought on uh, maybe added uh, clarity on the long call side? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to remember is when we own call options, you know, we could very easily just buy the market. And buy the market means buy the SPY, which is an ETF that is basically one-tenth the value of the SPX or the S&P 500 index. So we could do that. But by owning call options, long calls, we control but don't necessarily own the market. We don't have to buy that. And Jay, as you pointed out, I mean, what you spend on the long calls is considerably less than you would spend on, let's say, going out and buying SPY. But the thing you mentioned, though, is, of course, whatever you pay for those, uh, when you own a call, you have the right but not the obligation to eventually convert the shares or just sell the calls. Most people just buy and sell the calls. But that's all you can lose. 
And so I think that's, that's an important point. On the fixed income side, I'll remind people too, Jay, that a year ago, like one-year treasury bonds were yielding something like 0.07%. So we're going to transition to the bond side of this in a little bit. But I, I think I just wanted to hammer that point home. Like this was not available previously, uh, Jay. Yeah. Like, you know, if we could have used treasuries a year ago, even, you know, during COVID, during the 2018 sell-off, treasuries are a viable uh, alternative and actually the preferred one because the risk is lower, right? We're always trying to manage the risk in what I'll call the yield-bearing portion of the portfolio. And we've done that different ways in the past, right? We've used preferred stock. We've done, you know, option premium. We've done like TLT, right? A, a collar on TLT. What we started this year with was, uh, you know, the ETF SRLN and the ETF SJNK, that's Sterling and S-Junk Secured Loans and Short Duration High Yield. Those are the positions we used. And then we bought a hedge with puts on uh, the ETF HYG, which is kind of a longer duration. And I'd say the, the you know, the most, the, the much, much larger fund HYG, we use the uh, the puts on that as protection, and so that was our construction. And look, there was a let's let's call a spade a spade. This was a bad year for bonds, right? Uh, the arguably the worst year for bonds. I think Derek, you've done some work on this for the aggregate bond index, the AGG, the Bloomberg Aggregate Bloomberg Barclays Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index. I think that's the official name of it. That has had its worst year in history. Am I correct about that? Yeah. And that index came about very late 70s, called 1980. But on a global bond basis, yeah, I mean, you're talking about magnitudes of downdrafts that are just unheard of in, in uh, fixed income markets. And it's considered to be the safe choice, right? The AGG is considered to be like where you go to put safe money that you're not taking a lot of risk with. And uh, this year, it's probably pressing, what, down 18%, 19% so far? Yeah, Jay, on a, on a price basis, it's actually through the down 20%. Now, it's not fair to just use price on a bond ETF because you have dividends. But it is getting close to that down 20% total return level, Jay. And, and I mean, the downturns for a full year in the past have been only at worst, you know, a few percent down in a full year. So... Absolutely. And now I will say too, we used uh, senior loans, we used short duration, high yield. Of the fixed income complex or fixed income space, that's a fancy way for saying, of all the different bonds and funds you could have owned, those two have been some of the better performing, meaning they haven't drawn down as much. If you were further out on the uh, duration curve, a maturity curve, let's say using 30-year treasuries or even investment grade bonds or 10-year treasuries, the losses were pretty substantial in those. And as we get through, you know, maybe detailing a little bit more about how bonds have interest rate risk and yield to maturity and different things like that. But I would say we already hedged a little bit by using the stuff that didn't go down as much. And then we had some hedges on that. But I, I think the thing for the adjustments and the opportunity in the strategy is that with treasuries, there is a little bit more of a fixed nature on how much they can go down. Uh, also, you mentioned the risk of defaults. And so the, the characteristics from a risk standpoint in the portfolio are a little bit more appealing, in my opinion, because it matches a little more with the story 
of just being able to potentially lose what you spend on the call options, Jay. And I think that's that's kind of where we're going with this. Yeah, it, br- it brings the portfolio to be much more single dimension based versus multi-dimension, right? So this move, if we hold those treasuries to you know maturity and we hold our options to expiration, which we have deliberately lined those two things up, um, the risk the the risk we take is just losing the the price in the calls, right? We are now uh, we, we've re- we've shed the risk of things like duration risk associated with bond funds. We've shed the risk of defaults uh, in the high yield and secured space, right? We've we've shed those things off in the portfolio and just been able to focus on you know just the stock market risk up or down. Right. And then we've limited the stock market risk because we use calls instead of owning the market. So it has made the strategy much more focused, um, which is what we prefer. Right. We prefer simple over complicated. Um, and it does make things a little more, you know, what the strategy is designed to do. Right. Have market exposure where you're capturing 60, 70, 80 percent of the upside of the market while limiting the downside risk. Right. That's ultimately what we want to do in that strategy. And it was difficult to do in the last few years. But uh, with the opportunity of bonds where they are today, that is absolutely more evident. I do, um, Derek, want to point out one difference that you know we haven't really talked about yet, which was using a bond ETF or a bond fund versus actually holding the treasuries, right? In our positions, in our accounts, we're actually just buying the treasury, right? Holding U.S. government positions, not using a fund. And there's a little bit of an advantage to that. And Derek, I think you understand it or you could explain it better than I can with the challenge of having to hit kind of a target duration and rolling in a fund, right? Do you want to kind of explain the advantage of holding the bonds themselves versus the, uh, say, a bond fund? Yeah. I mean, so so let's say that you bought a an ETF. I'm going to call it XYZ ETF, which the audience should know is a completely fictitious made up ETF name. But why not? And let's say it's a, it's an ETF that has it's it's holding you know its duration target duration is about five year U.S. government bonds, which is a fancy way for saying treasuries. So in the fund, what's going to happen is if they want to keep that duration around five years, the, or the maturities around five years, you know whatever you want to call it. What's going to happen is if they hold a bunch of bonds, and let's let's pretend that no money's coming in, no money's coming out of the the fund. Well, as time passes, this bond fund, quote unquote, XYZ, which is trying to target this five-year-ish maturity, those bonds are going to start to to pass over time. And now what do you do if there are only four years left and you've got a bond fund that's targeting five years? What happens in the fund is they've got to turn over those positions to get that duration back to around that five. And it's one of the reasons why some of the bond funds, they're not like, a, hey, this is a five-year. It might be a one to three, you know, U.S. government one to three fund, or it might be a, a seven to 10-year uh, maturity fund. When we hold actual bonds, there's a, a couple main advantages. And I'll kind of go through these quickly. Number one is when you hold bonds, let's say we hold two different bonds and one matures, what are we, September, end of September now. Let's say one matures at the end of August of next year, 23, and the other one matures mid-May of 24, okay? The one that matures in, uh, you know, let's say in 2023, its sensitivity to interest rates is only about 0.9, 
What does that mean? It means if interest rates went up tomorrow, tomorrow or today, 100 basis points, you would expect that bond's market value to be down a little, you know, 0.9%. But here's the thing. We can just hold these bonds until they mature. And what does that mean? It means every day that passes, the sensitivity to interest rates goes down. And what that also means is, even if rates go up a lot and there's a decline in the market value, we're already sort of fixed with what we're going to get at maturity. Again, assuming the you know, unheard of doesn't happen and, and the U.S. government defaults. Uh, that would be a whole other set of problems. And so when you hold these individual bonds, you don't have to worry about uh, the fund trading in and out of them or keeping the duration up. You get to ride these out. And what happens is you get a combination of either the coupon payments that are going to pay you every you know six months, and you'll also get a change in the price of the bond eventually to par value. Jay, before I get into that aspect, though, let me just transition back to the idea of holding individual bonds and make sure we, we clarify that. We get to hold these bonds. We get to hold them to maturity. And you're taking, there's really not a risk of default with U.S. Treasuries. Uh, so, Jay, you want to make any comments on that before I, I kind of go through the, the other? No, I, 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 it's the fact that we can hold the bonds to maturity and, you know, without <laughs> pending any defaults, which, which we said is really, really, really unlikely, you're going to get, you know, par value at the end of it. Typically, that par is 100, right? So, you're right. If we could hold, I don't really mind so much if there's fluctuation in the short term because I know what this bond is going to be worth, right? I know I'm going to get paid back the money I put into it. So, uh, and usually a little more, right? Because usually buy at a discount. Not always the case, but for us, we do. Um, you know, and you're going to get a little growth, right? You're going to get a little appreciation. So I think that's where you wanted to lead into it. But no, holding the individual bonds is a real uh, a real advantage that we could do that with treasuries, where it's much harder to do that with, you know, corporate bonds and whether it's high yield or investment grade. And you have to create, like, you know, the basket of 100 different holdings. You know, that's why there are still advantages to bond funds. But for what we're doing with buy and hedge, we don't need those. We get everything that we need out of the treasury. The question comes up, too, is, well, do you still have interest rate risk? And part of the reason why we, we pick such low uh, time to maturity bonds, because they have a low duration. Duration of maturity, and I know this is sometimes confusing, maturity is how long a bond has until it gets to its maturity date at par. Uh, and then duration is a formula that tells you what is your sensitivity to changes in interest rates. In other words, if interest rates go up by a full 1% today, what do you make or lose? Or if they go down 1%, what do you make? And, you know, just uh, give you a, a back of the napkin calculation, you know, a, a sample strategy, just looking at it, you know, we're about 1.2% uh, duration. And then, as I mentioned, every day that passes, that duration goes down and down and down because your sensitivity to interest rates is lessened. So there's not a lot of interest rate risk. And the other thing that I think is misunderstood about bonds is this idea of, you know, yield to maturity. And so this, for those of you, you know, especially the financial advisors and institutions, uh, institutional folks who listen to this might be saying, well, I know how to, a bond works. 
But a good way to explain this is, you know, when you look at a bond, it it's issued. I mean, essentially, a bond is you know a company or a government getting a loan of money, and it's for a term, and it matures, and assuming no defaults, it matures at at a thousand dollars per bond. All right, every bond has. I shouldn't say every bond. There are some things called zero coupon bonds, which don't pay any coupons, which just means they don't pay any interest out. And then other bonds pay coupons usually twice a year, so every six months. And the coupon rate is the amount of interest. So let's say you have a 1% coupon on a $1,000 bond. Okay, uh, 1% means you pay what? $10 a year, if I'm doing my math right, in interest. 1% of 1,000, yes, there you go. Yes, 10 bucks. But when you buy a bond, most people are buying these in the secondary market. It means they're not at auction at a fresh, you know, off the run $1,000. And so what happens with a bond, let's say you bought a bond for $97, which I know I just confused you. You said, wait a second, what does that mean? Well, bonds are priced in one thing, but the value is really something else. So let's say you buy a bond for $970 and it has a 1% coupon. You're saying, well, wait a second. Um, how does that work then? Well, your yield to maturity is a fancy way of saying, what's the annualized rate of return, including the interest that you'll receive and when the bond goes from its current price to $1,000 at maturity. And so you make the difference between 1000 and 970 so 30 bucks there, and you make your 1%. And so the yield to maturity on it, sort of a complete basis that you're earning is 4%. And so if you see a bond in, a, in a, an account, really the yield to maturity is, is including those two things. And the reason why this is used on, on Wall Street is that let's say you have an old bond that was paying 1% and new bonds are paying 4%. Like why would you ever pay, buy the old bond only giving you 1%? Well, the bond's price has to change because it has to sort of equal on a yield to maturity basis what the new bonds are paying. And so that's just the difference, Jay, in how these are calculated. Um, I hope I explained that correctly. You kind of, it's it's sort of a, uh, a longer explanation that I'm trying to do in five minutes, but it's just, you can make money on the difference in price. You can make money on the interest and it's the total of the two, right? Yeah. The, the value goes towards a hundred, right? And if you buy it less than a hundred, you have that appreciation and you get paid the coupon while you hold it. Right. And that is, that's exactly you know, right. Those are constantly adjusted to what the market is trading at for, you know, bonds of that, you know, duration, that maturity, right? So if the two years trade in four, you know, your price is going to adjust. They, your coupon doesn't change, though. I think it's important to say when a, when, a, when a bond is issued, the coupon is what it is for the most part, right? So it's just the price that adjusts so that the net, when it's done between the appreciation and the coupon, comes to that target number. In this case, we're about 4%. Nope, that's right. And, and keying on that 4%, kind of bringing it back to the, the construction of, let's say, uh, our buy and head strategy, our, our sort of flagship strategy, is the idea you, you started off the podcast explaining, you know, let's say in that pie, around 10% is allocated to buy long calls. And you say, okay, well, let's say the market goes down 80%. All right, well, those calls aren't going to be worth anything. So you know your risk there uh, is targeted, you know, 10%. You say, well, okay, well, I still lost 10%. But then, Jay, that other 90%, 
let's say it's in uh, very short duration U.S. Treasury bonds with a yield to maturity of 4% annual, you say, okay, well, if I, if I get 4% there, I spend 10%. If the market goes down 80%, if I hold the bonds to maturity and obviously the expire, uh, options expire worthless, you say, well, my risk really in that example is right around 6%. I know sometimes you know, we build positions that are longer than a year or something like that. But I think taking it back to its core, that's kind of the, the purpose of the fixed income, right, Jay? That's exactly right. You got it. That's what we, I mean, that's the point, right? So when we think about the difference between holding treasuries and the idea of holding these until maturity, no matter sort of what happens, you have a little bit more of a floor, a harder floor, much like we did on the equity side, now in the total portfolio, where we use the short duration high yield or uh, short, you know, senior loans don't really have much duration because they, they adjust. Those sometimes can, and we saw this in 2020, uh, those kind of overshot to the downside a little bit. And so that's where it, it becomes a little more difficult to, to align the, the two, sort of the vision of the strategy, where now it's, it's a lot more alignable. How's that for a way of describing it, Jay? <laughs> okay. I think that's fair. And we, like we've said, right, it's, it's allowed us to be more focused on the returns of the market. I do think it's interesting to point out though, right? If you spend 10% on the calls and the market goes down and you lose all that, right? You st Because the market's lower in a year or two years, which is kind of our build time, right? Year and a half is, is kind of our average build time on these. Um, you still have the income coming in for the treasuries, right? So if I know I should expect my yield to maturity to run at about 4% a year, but I could lose 10% of my long calls What's my net risk, right? Let's let's get to the brass tacks of this. My net risk, my net risk is ten minus four six, right? So we end up having this exposure to the market without the kind of additional dynamics of you know duration on high yield and defaults on high yield and those kinds of things. Um, it allows us to simplify the math on that because, but like again, we're trying to make it easy. It allows us to simplify it to say, look, if it all goes wrong in the market and we continue to go lower in the market, we're taking 6% risk from here, right? Is that kind of fair to say? No, I, I think that's fair. And I think the other thing I wanted to ask you to, to talk about, Jay, is we like to invest avoided losses. And this sort of strategy shift or adjustment allowed just that. And I think it's worth noting that uh, there's people, although it's buy and hedge retirement, a lot of people use this in taxable accounts because they like the uh, the makeup of the risk profile. They like the attributes of the of the strategy and what it does. And for them, you know, based upon their investment goals and what they're looking for, it just works. And so, this was a little bit of a an opportunity to um, to take off some of the existing contracts, take you know, harvest some tax losses there. But Jay, also, I want to see if you can just touch on the idea of resetting the strikes lower. Um, it's a way of sort of reinvesting the avoided losses. Can you just kind of address that? Yeah. Well, not now that we have kind of the ability to, you know, get much closer to defining our outcome, right? Because we're down to the, the risk of just the calls, uh, that we're experiencing in the portfolio. Um, we rebuilt those portfolios, harvested the losses on the existing calls, which, Look, the existing calls did their job. They limited the loss, right? That portion of the portfolio. Remember, I started with that 90-10 pie that 
90 percent uh, uh, did one thing, but the 10 percent that was allocated to long stocks, they limited the risk to about 10 percent. And so now I think it was a little less than that. And so now we said, OK, let's rebuild that position down here, because one of the things we didn't want to give up when you rotate away from the high yield was the correlation of high yield to stocks. Right. There is a correlation of high yield to stocks, which was part of the problem was why high yield had an issue this year. Again, the high yield we picked did better than just the pure bonds out there, but that's besides the point. But we didn't want to give up a potential rebound in the sirloin and the S-junk themselves. And so the way that we compensated for that is we said, look, we know what our risk can be, We've, uh, but we want to capture the market when it does rebound, right? I'm not saying the date that that'll happen, but history tells us that markets eventually rebound. And we don't want to get conservative to the point where we miss on the rebound, right? We participate on the way down. We certainly don't want to miss the rebound on the way back up. And so this move allowed us to harvest tax losses in the calls that we had, rebuild here, redefine everybody, get the accounts kind of all aligned to the point where we know the upside capture, what it will be, uh, and we know the downside risk that we're limiting. And so that is why we did it, right? So it's we don't want to miss the upside, and we also want to harvest some taxable advantage or harvest tax losses for taxable accounts. And then the IRAs, they still get the benefit here of rebuilding the positions at a much lower level in the market. And if we do see a rebound in the market of 20, 30% over the next year, which, you know, bear markets tend to rebound to that degree one year after they bottom out, maybe not, maybe even more. Um, we don't want to miss out on that. And so we haven't reduced our ability to participate on the upside while we've actually now put a, you know, a more definable floor in the portfolio. A quick question. Sometimes people have asked me to with the treasuries, they say, Derek, uh, if the Fed comes in and starts slashing interest rates, which seems, you know, in our current environment, uh, you know, an odd question, but it's a fair question. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a little bit of an opportunity if, if let's say there's a, a massive flight to quality and the Fed starts slashing interest rates, uh, that the bonds in the portfolio would get a little bit of a lift. But remember, uh, we don't have a lot of interest rate risk in there, which also means the same benefit for not going down that much if interest rates go up. Um, you know, they're not necessarily going to go crazy in, in price. Uh, but I, I thought I'd mention that. So, well, there might be they mark they may mark as a gain, right? You may show some appreciation in that scenario. But the more likely scenario is that, right? Uh, the Fed continues to raise over the next three to four months, and uh, they will mark at a slight loss, right? But again, as you described, it will be it won't be very much, and it'll be short lived because we're going to hold these bonds to the end, right? So, um, the, I, where I thought you were going to go with that question was. You know, well, okay, guys, what happens when we get, you know, rates back down to two or three percent? In that scenario, the strategy will have to adjust again. But, you know, there's a part of me that is hoping the regime of zero percent rates, zero percent yield, uh, the, that regime is over, right? And we think that there's a chance that treasuries continue to play a part in a, you know, risk managed portfolio for us for the long term. This is not. But if it isn't, it isn't, right? We'll deal with what we dealt with in 2020 and 2021, which the strategy did just fine in those environments, actually did really well in those environments. Um, it's the rising rate environment that gave us the biggest challenge on the income portion. Uh, but, you know, we'll deal with that situation if it comes. Right now, and even over the next six months, we think this continues to be the right way to build this portfolio. 
where we take advantage of these higher short duration rates. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I agree. I really like this build. I really like the construction, the adjustments. And I think, in my opinion, it's it's a positive for the strategy and, you know, for uh, for the advisors and clients who who use it. And uh, so I think I think we sort of given a, a good overview and, um, you know, hopefully this this helps people understand the, the different pieces. Jay, I don't think there's anything else to add. I, I did have a potential recommendation for you, but anything else you wanted to add on the on the buy and head strategy. You know, the only th- other thing I'd say is we talked a little bit about rebounds and time in a bear market, right? And I think you've done some work on this, Dirk, and we've put this out there in the past, but, you know, take away 2008 out of the kind of bear market since 1950. And the typical bear market lasts, you know, just around 400 days, maybe 350, 400 days. We're 275 days into this one, right? So I know it, things seem pretty bad. The market's Pressing to new lows as we have this podcast, as we're recording this podcast right now. I think I saw 36.38 on the S&P. You know, like this will not last forever, right? This is the market decline can be reversed with one sentence from the Fed, right? Where they say, we think we've, you know, raised interest rates enough and we're seeing inflation come down. You see a pretty quick reversal in the market, right? So I listen, this is a little self-inflicted. I know it's felt like a long time. We haven't had a bear market for this long in a long time. And so, you know, what the reason we use options that go out a year, a year and a half, is because we think over that time frame, we want to be invested in the market. I don't know when the rebound will occur, but I certainly don't want to miss it. So, you know, we like to look at that longer term period. And by using treasuries, it helps us pay for adding uh, to the length of time in our long calls. So I thought I'd add that to the mix. That was also part of the reason we did the rebuild. We got everybody's expirations lined up that, you know, if and when the market rebound occurs, and I know you've done other work on this, especially talking about the midterm elections uh, and bear markets, we don't want to be on the sideline when it happens. That was it. Yep. 100% 100% agree, Jay. And and my research also showed 2008, 2009. 2009, as the market was bottoming and coming out of the bottom, there was an unbelievable amount of cash on the sidelines and an unbelievable amount of cash that stayed on the sidelines for years after you know, the 2009 bottom. You don't know when bottoms are. You don't know when tops are. All you can do is stay in the market, stay invested and, and be hedged. And that's it. And uh, you know that's that's kind of that's enough of that, I think, Jay. Yeah, <laughs> I think so let me hear your, your your recommendation. I'm I'm open. Well, it's it's one I'm, I'm interested. I've seen the preview for. It's called the greatest beer run ever. It's going to be on Apple TV Plus, September 30th. I hadn't heard this story before, but apparently, a guy who was in Long Island uh, in a bar with his buddy said, "You know, it'd be great if somebody would go over and, and bring the the soldiers a beer." So. Uh, apparently, it's I a true it was story. Vietnam, right? Was it the Vietnam? Vietnam. War? Yeah, yeah, Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I saw it's Zach Efron, and it looks kind of interesting. So it's like a, a pre recommendation, and I'm going to watch it and see what happens. But uh, you know, in case you have any travel coming up, Jay, on the plane, might be a good uh, good thing to download if you can. Yeah, got it. No, I am aware of it. Uh, uh, definitely interested in uh, in watching it. I do have one for you that, uh, you know, don't, don't question my judgment too much on this one. But again, uh, uh, my wife and I have enjoyed it and the new season came out. It's The Handmaid's Tale. And if you want to see, you know, what a 
you know, how weird the world can get, that one ends up being a good one to watch. I think that this is the final season that just came out. So we're in the middle of that. I've heard of it. I've, I've never watched it. So how many seasons are out now? Uh, I think five. And it were really, uh, it, it's, it's about uh, kind of this, you know, I don't even know the right way to describe it, but, you know, America is kind of overthrown by an ultra conservative sect of the population. And, uh, you know, it is, uh, it is very, and, you know, the Americans are almost, you know, pushed out of our, our territory and, uh, it's, it's, you know, apparently in this time frame, uh, fertility is a problem. And so, you know, women are used to, you know, harvest babies, whether you want to or not. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. And a handmaid is somebody who is, you know, you gotta go have babies, right? Like that's it. You're kind of a kept person. So it is a weird, uh, like it'll, you know, they, they've done a great job of creating a very, you know, strange <laughs> political and country environment in what is currently the United States might be worth watching. I've probably done a terrible job of describing it to you. I should have looked. It probably could, if the producers are listening and I'm sure they're not, uh, they'd probably be like, please don't ever describe our series again. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, what? So June yeah. Osborne is the main character and it's, uh, the woman, uh, uh, oh boy, you know what, Derek, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop right now. Yeah. If you don't have it, it's great. If you don't, uh, it might be interesting to watch it. There you go. I'll leave it at that. You know, the other one people keep telling me it's, you know, like I, I rewatch the wire. I know you watch that. And like the, the series in the nineties or, or the early two thousands, they're very long, lots of episodes. Like I've never watched breaking bad or better call Saul. And it's on my list to get around to it, but I'm like, that's a really big time commitment to invest. I know it's, it's oh yeah, that's awesome. no joke, right? That's that's a true commitment. I think there's like 195 episodes on Breaking Bad. Yeah, that's that's a little rough. So, all right, Jay, I think we'll leave it there. And as always, if people have uh, you know questions, I'll put a link to the, uh, the strategy page on zegafinancial.com. And uh, also, we put out a, a piece of content, an article sort of describing the, uh, the strategy changes as well. I'll link to that and as well as some other things. And uh, we'll kind of go from there. And then uh, we'll save the hour complaining about the officiating in the Giants-Cowboys Monday night game for another time. Listen, uh, our chief compliance officer is a Dallas fan. He may not approve the webcast if we talk too much about that nonsense. Yeah, refereeing was great then. Fantastic. Never better. Never yeah, better. Yeah, they really earned the win. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fantastic. I mean, it's clearly the Giants receivers' fault for running into the Cowboys. Uh, they shouldn't have done that. We'll leave it there. All right, you, could, you couldn't let it go. <laughs> <I got laughs> All you. right, Jay. Thanks again for the time, and uh, you know, we'll see you again maybe in, uh, in a few weeks. But uh, all right, everyone, uh, we'll see you next week on episode 189. Take care. Bye.